Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Jordan, and I am joined with Tanner. Tanner, how are you today? I'm good, Jordan. Thanks for asking. Wonderful. All right. Well, today we have uh, we have John O'Fee, QC, with us. Uh, QC, just for you who don't know, stands for Queen's Council, and essentially means he's one of the one of the higher recognized lawyers in Canada. It's a big deal to get QC, and essentially all that means is. It's a big deal. It's a very smart guy we're talking to today. It's going to be really exciting. So, uh, tell, me, so tell me more about him. Yeah, no, we, we are very fortunate to, to have John O'Fee today. Um, as Jordan mentioned, he, he's a QC, and a, I, you can't talk too much about him being a QC. Uh, it, it really is a big deal. <laughs> uh, so John, he, he earned his commerce and law degrees from UBC. Um, after graduation, he moved back up to his hometown of Kamloops, uh, where he worked in law doing real estate development, corporate transactions, wills and estates. And, you know, this isn't the only stuff John's done. He, he went and was elected to Kamloops City Council. Uh, he was the chair of the Municipal Finance Authority, worked for the Airport Authority for a little while, um, done a bunch of different volunteer roles, um, He's on the school board as well. Like, if you say it, John has probably done it. And I think that's led to a really interesting podcast. Um, we got into a lot of different things today. Uh, like, Jordan uh, was really interested about tax law. So we, we talked a lot about tax law for a bit. Uh, we talked about some business associations, real estate transactions, some corporate corporations and how they do real estate transactions. So we really do get into a lot of uh, meat and potatoes, <laughs> as you can say. Well, Tanner, that was an excellent rundown. Oh, Top thanks, notch. Jordan. Top notch rundown. Uh, but yeah, without, without further ado, Get into it. Let's listen to the podcast. All righty. Are we, we live? We're live. Okay. Let's Perfect. <laughs> John O'Fee, how are you doing? Welcome to the podcast. I'm doing fantastic. How are you guys doing? I think pretty we're good. good. Pretty good. We are so happy that you're with us today. This is going to be awesome. That's my pleasure to be here. And, uh, you know, real estate is, is uh, what I'm most familiar with, is what I spent my career doing, it's what I teach in the law school. So, um, as I said to you before, if I, if I have an area of expertise, and I'm not saying I do, it's real estate. So I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, we have no area of expertise in there. So, <laughs> you know, my advice to any law student would be don't think that you're ever going to be a specialist in anything coming out of law school because you're not. Okay? Yeah, you gain your expertise through experience. I would say be a bit of a journalist in law school because that will probably serve you better. You don't know for sure what you're going to end up doing. And uh, there's, there's lots of examples of people that the last thing on earth I thought I'd ever be doing is what I'm doing now. Yeah, so true. Try and do as many things as possible. If you told me coming out of law school, one day you're going to be CEO of an Indian band, then you're going to teach at the law school <laughs> calendars, I would have doubled over laughing and said, you've lost your mind. A, uh, I, I don't even, in my wildest dreams, think I'd be the administrator of the Calendars Indian band. And, and Calendars is never going to have a law school. I'll bet you $1,000 Calendars won't have a law school in 50 years. Uh, I, I would have thought that was absurd. So, and here I am. So, so you never know uh, the path your career is going to take. And so don't think that you're going to come out of law school as an expert in anything because you won't. And, and hey, you don't come out of law school as an expert in anything, no matter how hard you say. It's, <laughs> it's going to be your practice experience that determines your expertise. Five years ago in business school, I would have never thought I was going to be in law school. And in Kamloops. Running a, in Kamloops, running a podcast. <laughs> Probably and I, I'm used to not being an expert. A podcast? Podcast. 20 years, 10 years ago, I didn't even know what a podcast was. Listen, when you're my age, you'll be telling kids about how you had a flip phone, and they'll go, really, a flip phone? Tell yeah, me they're going to be like, what the hell is a podcast? What's a flip phone? Back, you know, when you had a keyboard on your phone, you actually had to type things. So if you found this episode in the deep archives of wherever, um, this is a podcast. It's a, you, you interview people and uh, it's very archaic. These aliens are now on the planet, but yeah. But yeah. Oh, they're here. They're, here. they're, they're definitely they're here. Already here. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess getting into it, um, so we kind of wanted to chat uh, today about uh, kind of large real estate pur purchases, so like uh, pur purchasing a home or uh, purchasing some sort of commercial pro um, 
um, some sort of commercial commercial building. We wanted to chat about the, the kind of process of going about that, like like the legal implications of uh, and, and, the, and the process of like getting a mortgage and uh, funding these bank purchases. So I was, I was wondering if you could speak to that at all. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think you first start off deciding if you're, um, you know, are you going to buy or are you going to rent, right? And and uh, one of the things that we sometimes lose track of is that renting isn't always the worst idea you ever had. But the thing is, it's, it's a short-term transaction. There aren't large transaction costs like there is with a real estate transaction. Um, you, you exchange a certain amount of money in, in exchange for one month worth of shelter, right? And, and uh that gives you a level of mobility that, that might be necessary at a certain stage of your life. So buying everywhere you go, uh, you've always got to factor in a property transfer tax, CMHC fees, like the, the, which is your mortgage approval fees, um, uh, real estate commissions, et cetera. So you want to first feel reasonably comfortable that this is a place I want to spend a bit of time. And once you're, you're comfortable that that's, you know, you have a future spanning at least a few years, um, that's when maybe the time to invest in real estate could start to make sense for you. Until then, you know, there, there is some, some pretty good arguments that, that renting until you're sort of sure where your feet are planted is, is not the worst idea that you have because buying and selling, buying and selling, you know, on an annual basis that uh, the real estate commissions and the other costs start to really eat into any potential profit. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense. It, I, I've always been told, at least by my parents growing up, like you want to buy, you want to get into the market, but sometimes and especially in some of the markets in Canada like if you look at Vancouver or Toronto it's it's just so difficult to get into those markets that renting really is kind of one of the only options or at least a more viable option for for some people yeah, and you know it, it, a real estate investment it, it could make sense where you are for example uh, if you look at a market like Vancouver is a good example where where uh, if you if you do the arithmetic of buying an apartment unit and and rent or versus renting that exact same unit to buy it costs you quite a lot more, and and you're kind of rolling the dice a bit that that uh, condominium values are going to continue to appreciate into infinity, which isn't necessarily the case. It, it's often a bit of a roller coaster ride. So, you know, you may say to yourself, you know what, I'm going to rent in Vancouver, but I'm going to buy an investment property somewhere like Kamloops because it has positive cash flow. You could buy a fourplex in Kamloops and you know, do your arithmetic on that goal. This one actually makes me profit. And I can, uh, you know, be in a real estate market, earning an income, paying off my mortgage there while I'm renting in Vancouver, for example, right? So your real estate investment doesn't necessarily have to be where you live. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. What, what are some things that we should actually be looking for if you were thinking about maybe getting into the investment real estate market? Um, are, is, is it a lower cost to get in is important? Or are you talking shorter term? Um, what are kind of some of the things? Investment in, in, in any kind of revenue property, like your rental uh, property, a commercial property, whatever it happens to be, right? Any investment you're, you're looking at two factors. Factor one is, is the revenue that comes in versus the expenses that go out, okay? And ideally, uh, you, you acquire something with positive cash flow because then it carries itself. And then you can ride out any, any ebbs and flows in the market as long as you keep the place reasonably, you know, steadily occupied at a market rate. If it kind of covers its, you know, its costs, you're going to be all right. And, and you'd like to see, obviously, you're going to have to put a down payment down and earning that down payment back over time, you know, within some reasonable time window. And that's just, you know, it's, especially you've got a business degree or, you know, get someone who's good with a spreadsheet. This is not rocket science, right? Like you want to make sure it generates a bit of positive cash flow. And if it does, then, you know, market fluctuations in the short term don't really give you a lot of heartburn because, you know, in the long run, things tend to appreciate. Okay. And there'll, there'll be peaks and valleys in that, but in the long run, I think you, you're probably okay. Uh, when you don't have positive cash flow, where you're the one who has to be throwing money into it every month, then you, the only thing you're banking on is that capital gain. You're hoping that it goes up in value. And, and that's more of a risky game, particularly in your stage of life, where uh, you know things go south for a little bit and maybe you, you, the, the property is empty for a bit and, and uh, you, know, you might find yourself in a very tenuous financial position. So you, know, you might uh, want to sort of look at you know look for something maybe it's not as sexy as being downtown maybe it doesn't have the upside for capital gains as being downtown potentially does 
but if it's steady eddy kind of you know you, you may be better off owning a, a you know a, as a unit in a commercial strata in in abbotsford that's you know got a good tenant been there you know will be there for the next 20 years you'll pay the thing off and you'll have this asset you know that it's just a steady eddy return and it's not as sexy maybe as, as a downtown condo but at the same time um, something you can manage, you can afford, and in the in, in the interim, say you live downtown and you rent or whatever, right? Like those, like those are rational discussions people can have. And depending, you know, this if you're a law student, you know, quite frankly, if you uh, you know the smaller towns uh, can be very rewarding. You know, you're you're kind of a, a big fish in a small pond when you're in a smaller town. Uh, you're a community leader of some sort. You can afford a very nice home. You can live a pretty nice lifestyle in a smaller town versus a large city. City, but you know, in the big city, there's the, the, the bigger bucks and there's the prestige and the bigger files and everything else. And so, you know, it has a certain appeal. I understand that as well. But uh, again, you got to decide what kind of person you are, um, and and don't sort of presume that your real estate investment has to be where you are. Are there any advantages um, to actually? A company ever ever owning their place of work? Tons of law firms and accounting firms own their building. Okay, lots of them. Oh, they do. And, okay, and and uh, especially in smaller centers, and, you know, they don't own the office tower. They're in here, you know, Blake's or one of these big firms. They don't own the building. But uh, uh, in Canada, I can give you examples of firms that I know own the building. What you do is you don't own it as partners in the law firm. You incorporate a separate company that owns that building, because oftentimes the building is a multi-tenant building, and you happen to be one of the tenants. But uh, you know. You got to get, again, sometimes when you look at this and, and lots of lawyers say, well, if I own my building, I can, you know, I'm paying rent to myself and, and that's all sounds wonderful, but the building has to make sense without you in it. If you see what I mean, like, does this building make sense as an investment, regardless of you being the tenant or not? Okay. And if it makes sense as an investment, then, then go ahead and buy it and rent, rent to yourself, so to speak. But you create a separate legal entity, create a company that would own the building. And, and uh, you would pay rent to that company and that company is probably owned, or the shareholders are probably the spouses of the partners in the law firm, that tends to be the model. Okay, and then that way the spouses, it's a good way to income split where if the building makes a bit of money, um, the, the spouses get that money as a dividend as opposed to the partners who are already probably earning, uh, you know, uh, they probably have a high marginal tax rate, so earning extra money is not what they want to do, right? Like even me, a lowly professor, uh, you know, every dollar I make, like if I make an extra dollar this year, I'm going to pay close to 40% tax on it. And so if I can move those extra dollars to somebody in my family who makes less money than me and has at a much lower tax rate, that's generally advantageous. So we can use the corporate form. And, and again, I don't sound sexist about this. It could be the you know, husband, wife, whatever. Uh, but typically in, in a relationship, with the professionals, usually one person is the higher income person, and if you can move income over to the lower income person, it could be. Um, you were talking about kind of this this idea of having a, a separate corporation own the actual land. What, what kind of goes into that, and, and how often do do things happen like that? Um, well, it, it would be unusual, quite frankly, to see any commercial building in any town, towns included, that isn't owned by a company. Uh, it, it's generally the, the model, right? Why you don't want to own these things personally and earn all this extra income personally. You want it to go into a corporation. Uh, you can, uh, the rules aren't as, as, as good as they once were, but you can still, um, you know, move income around uh, and, and you get, you know, it's, it's, it's generally speaking a better model than, than owning it personally because that's the whole idea is to kind of you know, keep that as a separate asset and not, be, not, not sort of be a personal asset. So, uh, the corporate form is, I mean, companies are easy, right? If someone came to me when I was practicing law and said, hey, my accountant says I need a company right away, I could say to them quite literally, is yesterday soon enough? Because I have companies sitting on the shelf ready to go, and I can transfer the shares of this shelf company has done nothing uh, to you literally yesterday. And and uh, so you can have a company anytime prior to, uh, up from the date that this company was incorporated. They sit on the shelf for a few months, and so, yeah. I might be able to give you a company two months ago, right? So, and it's like a, it's a $1,500 touch, right? So these are not big expensive things. We, we create these garden variety, you know, Canada grade A company, so to speak, that's uh, got five share classes. It's got everything kind of a generic company needs and they're just ready to go. Any, any law firm that you go to of any size is going to have four or five companies sitting on the shelf waiting for you to buy. 
So it's a fast and easy transaction. And it's, there, there's, there's all kinds of advantages to, to holding commercial property in particular in a company. Now, if you're just a small investor and you just buy one revenue condo, probably doesn't make sense to have a company. But if once you get it to a number of about four, you probably should have them in a company. It's, it, it, you, you, then you have a separate tax return for the company. It's separate and apart from you and all the expenses. Everything kind of flows through separate accounting. And it, it's, 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 it's a better model. Uh, uh, any, any account will tell you that. Um, you know, one property, even two property. If I owned a duplex or something, I might just, I will, I would, my, my spouse would own it. And and uh, uh, she would, you know, declare the revenue, claim the expenses, et cetera. Hey, I'm down for anything that saves taxes. So that, that makes sense to me. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if, if you have one person making 200000 and one person making nothing, uh, that family will pay more tax than if both of them make 100000 bucks. If you take right. anything away from this episode, there's a lot of ways to get her to, 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 to pay to optimize well, I mean, taxes. Listen, I, I, I don't go to bed at night thinking, you know, I'm just not paying enough tax. <laughs> I, I pay lots of tax, okay? And, and, and I don't mind paying tax. Truthfully, you know, taxation is the ignition price of civilization, right? Go to any place, they don't collect taxes, you don't want to live there. So, so I'm not anti-tax. I'm just, you know, you know, do the sensible things. Don't try to don't try to you know cheat the tax man, but just do sensible things to even out your incomes as best you can, and uh, you know legitimately claim the things you can legitimately claim. And and you know, as an investor, you know you get taxed pretty fairly on capital gains, right? Like the capital gain on your principal residence is completely tax free. What is it? Twenty five percent nowadays? Uh, no. Uh, the way it works, let's say you bought a revenue property, and let's just say for easy arithmetic, you bought it for half a million dollars. You bought a condo in Vancouver for half a million dollars you know, eight years ago, now it's worth a million, okay? And it was a revenue property, it was never your principal residence, and you've done, you've made a $500,000 profit. Half of that profit, so $250,000, okay? Because you made a half million in my simple world. Forget about, you know, you get to deduct commissions, and I would just, just presume you netted half a million bucks. Um, um, half of that gain is taxable as income. The other half is not. So you get 250,000 tax-free and the other 250,000 has to be declared as income. Okay. Okay. That's not bad. No. <laughs> Compared to, you know, <laughs> like, so you get 250, like no tax consequence of any kind. That, that's, that's not a bad deal. So, so it's not like, you know, investors who earn a capital gain are just, you know, getting beat over the head by the government. But, you know, like, yeah, you, you did well, we did well, everyone's happy, right? So that's not so bad compared to income, which, because all of it's taxable. And, and uh, right. so, so, yeah, having investments that earn a capital gain is, is, is a pretty great way of, of building wealth at a much lower tax rate. And it's yeah, available to anybody. We're jumping a bit of a tax law here, but I'm interested in... Uh... So, so, so what do you get taxed on that 250000 then? Um, so well, you, you declare there's income on your tax return and, you know. And it's at whatever your rate is. Okay, i got to pay that much. Yeah. So it's kind of at your rate for the year. Like That's like your personal rate. tax rate, yeah. Okay. That's why I say my wife would own it because, and I'm not trying yeah. to belittle my wife. She's a wonderful, talented person. If she had any sense, she would have left me 10 years ago. But uh, <laughs> that, that said, she, you know, uh, she earns a lower income. She teaches piano out of her home and, and uh, she earns a lower income than I do. And that's okay. Uh, so I would want the good stuff to be in her name because when that kind of capital gain comes in, um, taxed at her rate, you know, I've got a little bit more room before she starts coming into those higher tax brackets relative to me. I'm already at the top tax bracket for every additional dollar that I earn. And you don't have to, you know, it's not going to make crazy money to get to the top tax bracket. Once you sort of cross about 80000 90000 a year, every dollar you make is taxed at, I think it's like 36 point something percent. While we're on, while we talked about a million dollar place in Vancouver, just for <laughs> ridiculous downtown that, Vancouver. Is that a basement street now? What's a million bucks by in Vancouver? It's a crack house uh, somewhere. <laughs> Half interest in a carriage house in someone's back alley? What is that? Maybe. Maybe. Okay, so let's jump the realistic number to three million. <laughs> <laughs> Something massive. So, so, so that's most people don't have three million on cash in cash, except for like an outside, some sort of outside investor, maybe. But a lot of people don't have three million in cash. So, if you thought that a downtown Vancouver getting a three million dollar place was what was a sensible business investment if you wanted to rent it out via Airbnb or something. How would you go about buying a $3 million farm in Vancouver? 
on Airbnb, your arithmetic's got to be pretty good if you think that that math is going to work. That's <laughs> the thing about luxury properties. So, you know, the, you go to the west side of Vancouver, and you know what you can rent versus what your costs are. You just do the arithmetic and just calculate out what are my mortgage tax, you know, insurance, all these other costs. What would it cost to rent? And and it's there's absolutely no comparison. I mean, it's 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 ludicrous to suggest that buying makes sense in that market, other than there's a potential for a capital gain. And you know, I'm a bit of a cynic, and I wonder just how many millionaires are there out there? Like like at some at what point are we going to saturate this market and and people aren't just going to be prepared to pay that kind of money and is there is the shoe going to drop one day right and and that would keep me awake at night if this was i'm extending myself out you know if i had 600 million dollars i never really care that's one thing but uh if if this is like you you living and dying financially i would be really concerned about really stretching myself out too far and i think that gets to the the rough rule and this is my rough not my rough rules one's been communicated to me that i share with others is this that if you want to know what you can afford, okay, you do this. Take you and, and, and presuming you're, in, you know, the greatest bulwark against poverty is marriage. And, and so if you're in a, in a, in a marriage-like relationship with somebody, um, as a couple, you know, this is where you're going to accomplish things. Couples get things done, okay? And, and if you're pulling in the same direction and you have the same, uh, and I, I, you know, I've talked to lots of people about this over the course of my career, and it's, you know, Friends have come to me, they're having a problem with They say, look, you need to sit down with your significant other and chart out your plan. Say, here's where I want us to be. Here's how I think we can get there. Like, you got to both buy into the same plan. But presuming you've gone through that exercise, uh, take your income, take your spouse's income, um, gross, like before deduction, before anything. So let's just say you and your spouse make $200,000 between you, like gross income, 200 grand. You can afford comfortably a $600,000 profit. Just triple your gross aggregate income, and that's roughly what you can afford comfortably. You can afford more, okay? You could afford something more expensive than that, but now the mortgage is gonna to start to really loom into your life. It's going to be that thing that's going to be kind of the, the elephant in the room, right? That, that is going to impact uh, you know, entertainment decisions, vacation decisions, you, you know, it's going to sort of be that dominant thing. And people talk about being mortgage poor, that's what they're talking about, that the mortgage is the dominant cost in, in their life and God forbid they lose their job or someone gets laid off for a period of time, you're going to lose your house. You know, like it's just this, it's this big worry and creates stress in relationships. It's not good for you, uh, mental health or physical health wise. So I would say, you know, your rough upper limit is three times gross family and buy the place that costs that. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, and that would be, you know, the mortgage will be significant, but it won't be a dominant thing. Once you get to four and five times gross family income, you can, in theory, afford a million dollar property if you both make a hundred thousand bucks, okay? Because you're at about 40%. Um, and, and you could get a loan if you had, say, a hundred grand down on a million dollar property. You'd probably get a loan, and if you both made a hundred thousand, you could pay it off, and, and that might be a good idea. You know, if things work out, uh, the million dollar property will probably appreciate more than $600,000 property in absolute terms. And so, you know, if it all works, that's great. But just understand the mortgage now starts to dominate everything. And, and the market is not this steady slope of going up, 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 up. You know, it's going to have peaks and valleys, uh, you know, depending on what your career is, it might have peaks and valleys. And so I think for your peace of mind, quite frankly, I would say triple your gross family income is kind of the spot. At least when you're starting out, and then uh, you know if if you've got you know let's say you paid off your condo, you worked really hard, and now you're ready for that. You know you got a half million dollar condo, and you want to buy a one and a half million dollar house. Well, you put a half million dollars down. That's a different scenario, right? Like you're in a much stronger position than you'd otherwise be. You could always go to the bank and borrow some money in the short term if there was a bit of a financial reversal. You've got you know this how much wiggle room you have. Uh, down the line, as you get older, is it might dictate some of your choices that would be different. Than, than when you were um, uh, starting out, right? Speaking of mortgages and lent or borrowing money and all that, what is a good term? I, I mean, I'm always hearing these things for mortgages. Where you have a 25 year term, you have a 10 year term. Uh, maybe you could speak to that. You know, the, by law, you have to uh, pay this off in 25 years. Now, you don't have to pay it off in 25 years, but the amortization period of your mortgage has to be not more than 25 years. Okay, 300 months. And so uh, a bank's not allowed to lend you money 
over 50 year term, like like over 50 year amortization period. By law, it can't be more than 25 years. You have to qualify for a payment that pays this mortgage off in 25 years. Okay, and that's just public policy. We don't want people getting into long long term mortgages in other jurisdictions and other countries. You can get a 50 year mortgage. Okay, you can. 25 years is the absolute maximum. When you go to buy a house, you can get a one year term on your mortgage if you like. The term is just how long you can kind of put your interest rate in for. Uh, but you must qualify. So the, the bank has to pretend that you're applying for a five year fixed term interest mortgage. Okay, the variable term, the variable term interest rate is a little lower. Okay, and so uh, people sometimes opt for the variable interest rate because it tends to be lower than the fixed rate. The thing about the fixed rate, and I would say for a young couple, for what it's worth, um, if you're getting into property, your first five years, the nice thing about the fixed rate is if there's some weird thing happens in the world and there's an interest rate spike or something happening, you know what your interest rate is for five years. And that's where you can kind of roll up your sleeves and put some distance between what this place is worth and what you owe. Okay, because every mortgage that you're going to get on your first property is going to have at a minimum a 10% prepayment privilege, which means you can put up to 10% of your original mortgage amount as a lump sum down um, when, whenever you like. Well, once a year, I should say. So, but whenever you like, once a year. Typically, once a calendar year, but it could be once every 12 months, whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, so, I mean, there's only 10 tens in 100, right? So, if you put down 10% per year in seven years, you don't have a mortgage anymore. Right. Okay. And so, and 10% is a lot. So, and then people talk about bi-weekly. Now, bi-weekly is great. Again, simple arithmetic. If there's 52 weeks in a year, that means there's 26 two-week periods. If you make a half-month payment every two weeks, that means you pay 13 months a year instead of 12. And that's the trick of bi-weekly. It's not the frequency of the payment. It's the fact that just, you know, by increments, you pay one extra month a year. Okay. And that, in, in, the interest rates are low now, so it doesn't knock quite as much off a mortgage as it maybe it once did, but even at low interest rates, it'll probably knock four or five years off your mortgage. So you'd be, have it paid off in 20 versus 25. And, you know, fundamentally, what I would say to anyone starting out in real estate is understand that you have things that you can invest in. Okay. Let's say, you know, you, you inherit, your grandmother passes away. Sorry. Your grandmother's sick. I, I mean, you know, just a you know, a metaphorical grandmother. Some money comes out of the sky. Hundred thousand dollars falls out of the sky to you because you're always the favorite. And so you've got a hundred thousand dollars. Say, well, I'm going to invest this in the bank. So let's say you put this in in, in the bank at five percent. You can't get five percent, but let's say you do. Okay. Uh, well, you're going to pay income tax on that five percent. That's income. Okay. Everything you earn in interest is income. If instead you put that hundred thousand dollars against your three and a half percent mortgage, okay. Well, think about your mortgage. When you come home from work, after you pay your CPP and your EI and all your other deductions, then you go and make your mortgage payment. So your mortgage interest rate, all personal debt, your credit card, everything else, is, is after-tax interest. You pay 3.5% after-tax on your, on your personal mortgage. Okay, So putting money against a 3.5% mortgage is like putting money in the bank at 5% because net of tax, you're in the same place. Okay, so you know your debt is an investment. You get financially richer one of two ways: you have more or you owe less. The net effect is exactly the same. Okay, so if I put a hundred thousand against my mortgage, a hundred thousand dollars in the bank, I'm a hundred thousand dollars richer either way. Right. Okay, and so uh, your debt is an excellent investment, especially high interest debt. You know, people who carry credit card debt, I go, I have perfectly smart friends. Uh, you know, they, they've got twenty thousand dollars in credit card debt, and they're getting an RSP loan. I said. Putting money on your credit cards, like putting money in the bank at 18.5% after tax. I mean, there is no investment better than that. It's the worst investment you can make is acquiring that debt. The best investment you can make is paying it off. There's no other investment that's going to give you a risk-free guaranteed return of 18.5% after tax. Your credit card is that investment. So get rid of your credit card debt first. All your high interest debt first. Then you start working on your low interest rate debt. So once you're at a point where you're paying off all your high interest debt immediately, not carrying any, then you work on your low interest rate debt, things like your mortgage on your house. Okay, and, and um, um, people will argue with, and I've had friends, we've had these philosophical discussions that, you know, if you could do better in the market, you're better off because as you get older, your mortgage becomes a lower and lower portion of your income. It becomes more and more manageable, less and less significant. You just leave it, just make the minimum payment, invest over here instead. Okay, and I go, that's great, uh, but it implies a level of discipline that I don't generally see. Okay, it implies that people have this, you know, absolutely rock solid discipline and these big wads of cash staring at them that they're not going to go blow it, blow it on something. 
and you pay off your house whether you like it or not. And if you pay it into debt, you don't sort of you don't want to go backwards. You don't want to acquire more debt. So you tend to you know be a bit more disciplined when you're paying down debt. And in my experience, uh, people who are financially secure don't really worry about money. Uh, have paid off all their debt. They own a they own a property of some description or more than one, and and they have no debt. And they're quite comfortable. And the money comes in, and they don't really think about it. Right. And and that that's the place you want to be for what it's worth when you're my age is, is uh, you know, be in a place in life where you're not, you know, you don't really think about money in terms of it being, geez, I, I don't have enough, or I got, I got to do this, I got to pay that, so I have enough money to do whatever I want. And that's, uh, that's kind of the trick to it. This, it's no magic, right? It's just a little bit of discipline early pays big dividends later. And we're chatting about the, the word mortgage a lot. To think that just mortgage means a really big loan. I wasn't quite sure exactly what, what legal rights a mortgage is. So I was wondering if you could maybe, I mean, chat more about the nitty gritty legal of a mortgage. A mortgage is a really interesting thing. Mortgage on land in particular is this really weird transaction that you don't typically see in law. And that is, you know, all mortgages, even a chattel mortgage, a mortgage on a thing, uh, is, is two things, right? And, and if you study any kind of banking, they'll, they'll talk about the five C's of credit. But the two most important C's of credit are collateral and capacity. Capacity is how are you gonna pay me back? And collateral is what can I take if you don't? Okay, so if you go to apply for a loan, uh, what are they gonna ask you? Go, well, where do you work? How long have you worked there? What's your income? Let's see your tax return. Like they're trying to understand your capacity. Okay, they look at your credit. Yeah, you know, person pays off their debt sometimes. That's good. They've had a good job. Their income. Yeah, okay, they they're 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 calculating your capacity. And any loan that happens, like when you apply for a cell phone, they did a credit check on you. You got your first credit card. They did a credit check on you. Right? And your credit limit's probably gone up as you keep on paying off things because you're demonstrating you have more capacity. Okay? So capacity is, is, is a really critical component of, of the, the lending process. And then collateral is what can I take if you don't pay me? Okay? So the nice thing about land is land is fixed. We know where it is. You can't hide it in your neighbor's garage over the weekend. It's, it's right where we left it. Right? Land is exactly where it's supposed to be. Uh, there's a survey. We, we, can, we can walk up to it and touch it. That's why it's called real estate. It's real. Okay, and so you know it makes fantastic collateral because it can't be hidden. It can't, you know, it's just always where it's supposed to be. The bank can always find it. So as far as collateral goes, they they love land. That's why the lowest interest rates are on land because it tends to be relatively stable in price. People tend to want it. You can always find a market for it, and 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 we don't have to go looking for it. Right? You can't. You know, it's not like money you can move out of the country or you know something with wheels on it. Well, then you know, yeah, it's 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 hard to find sometimes, right? And so um, the idea that we can own land is not actually, you know, uh, an old tradition. Quite frankly, uh, most of us and anyone who's listening to this, you guys, you don't have to go very far back into your family tree to find a farmer. My dad grew up on a farm. My wife's dad grew up on a farm. It's just you know that's. That's, we all go back to our family trees, we'll find farmers, okay? And if we go back a few hundred years, you couldn't own land. Now your ancestors could own land. They, it's not that they didn't have the money or, or there was no, there's no way that they could own land. There's no register. There's no way you could acquire land. Uh, that was for the lords and the barons and the nobility or whoever, right? That, that was not for you or your ancestors, okay? They just paid rents and they kind of worked the land and paid the, the baron or the lord or whatever. whatever. And, and so the idea that, we can all acquire a piece of property. It's kind of a, you know, it's a relatively new idea in the history of civilization, at least. And now it's like the state, the government, if someone, you know, someone comes on my property and won't leave, I can call the police and they'll remove them. And I don't have to fight them. So that's kind of fun, right? Like, like that idea that we have this interest in land, this indefeasible title, okay? What is indefeasible? Think about that, freehold. You know, like that's, that, that's a big deal. And so, so, uh, We've got this wonderful asset that we can pledge and the bank can take if we don't pay. But unlike most things that the bank can take, I mean, the bank can take money out of your account if you don't pay and the bank can take your car if you didn't pay your car loan or your boat if you didn't pay your boat loan, they just come and they take it. When it comes to your land, you have what we call equity. People talk about equity as the difference between what they owe and what the property is worth. When in fact, equity is your equity of redemption. It is a legal concept, not a financial concept, okay? And so they shorten it when they say equity, but it's really your equity of redemption, okay? You have the right, you're given a period of time in which to redeem this property. If, if, if the bank comes to seize your, you know, tow truck pulls out in front of your place because you haven't made your car loan payments, they just put a hook on the car and they tow it away. 
There's no like, no, oh, you've got it. Oh, it's all right. We'll give you a few weeks to kind of figure this out, try to sell the car and pay us off. No, we're taking it, right? In your house, uh, by the time the bank gets it in front of the judge, it's going to be at least two months, and then you're going to get another six months uh, to redeem your properties. You know, you have this redemption period. Okay, and the redemption period is typically set at six months. But even after six months, if the house was still worth significantly more than the loan, you could probably go to the judge and say, look, the bank's not taking any big risk here. There's lots of equity in the property. Um, um, I, I need a few more months. Judge will give it to you. Okay, you, you would get additional time. They won't give you forever, but, but you would get additional time. Quite frankly, if you had lots of equity in the property, uh, the bank will probably lend you more money. <laughs> Are we for closing? What's your problem? You, you ought to work for all that. You know, we'll just make your mortgage a little bigger. Like, you know, what, what's if there's a big gap in values, right? So, uh, that that doesn't exist in other loans. And this idea of the equity of redemption is is what makes the property loan kind of a unique thing relative to other loans that we would normally get in our lives. Like, if you don't make your visa payments and you have money in your checking account, I guarantee you, the bank's going to be taking it real quick. And government account, you don't pay your taxes. They don't say, oh, well, let's, let's work on, you know, give you some time to think about that. They'll just crunch your bank account. So say if I own a property as a commercial property, and then I own one property as uh, my per my permanent residence, is the bank, and say I defaulted on both those loans, would the bank take away the commercial property before the residential property? Or would it happen at the same time? You know, the bank would probably chase the thing that was most marketable. Right, okay. and if, if they could get all of their money back from your commercial property, they, they just go go that way. Uh, you're getting into an interesting topic, which is uh, you know when I teach real estate transactions, uh, let's say we'll, let's take that scenario again, and let's say I own two properties and I have a first mortgage with the same bank on both properties, uh, and uh, uh, the bank could get all their money off of property A. They don't have to go after property B. You have the second mortgage on property B. You can force the bank to go after property A because you have an interest in property B. That's called marshalling. So you can apply to a court saying, hey, I'm the second mortgage holder. If bank goes after property A, they'll still get all their money. Or even if they get go fully after property A, then they kind of have their property B for less, so I get paid too. Okay, so you can right. force the lender above you to do that kind of stuff. That's called marshalling. Uh, but yeah, the banks, you know, uh, they go, if, you know, in theory, you know, let's say, I, I had a $500,000 mortgage and I had $500,000 in a bank account and I default on my mortgage. The bank can just go to my bank account and take the money just like any other one. Okay? They don't have to go after the property. Now, usually people aren't eccentric like that. <laughs> you have half a million bank, why wouldn't you make a mortgage payment? But in, in theory, <laughs> you need a new accountant. You know, I mean, that's the a mortgage case. is two things, right? It's, 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 a, it's a contract just like any other loan contract like your visa card. You know, Please bank, can I have some money and I'll pay you back later. Right, that's that's the con I'll pay you interest, so you know you get more money, and that's how you make money. You know, the banking model is a pretty simple model; it's been around for centuries, right? I borrow money from my depositors at a low interest rate, and I lend it out at a higher interest rate. It's a very simple business model, okay? Um, and that contract has done banks very well over the years, right? If, if I give you nothing in your savings account, I mean, uh, do you have money in the bank right now, Counter? Yep. You do. Where is it? Uh, well, there's, there's I mean, a shelf in the bank with your name on it, and then when you go to the ATM, someone went over there and takes your money and puts it through the other side of the machine. What happens? Well, then in that case, no, technically, no. I don't have any actual dollars. The, 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 the phrase money in the bank, okay, is nonsense. You have no money in the bank. A banker came up with that as a marketing ploy or something. You have no money in the bank. You have a contract with the bank to pay you back the money you lent them. You said to the bank, hey, bank, here's my money. Pay me back as much as I ask for whenever I'm asked. Okay? How much money are you earning on that money in the bank, Tanner? Not, not enough. Nothing. It's basic. <laughs> Nothing. Because, you know, you love your bank, and you don't, want, you don't want interest to sell you this beautiful friendship you have with the bank. So you say, hey, bank, have my money for you. In fact, you can charge me to pay me back. Okay? That's the contract that you signed with your, with your bank. You've agreed. Say, hey, bank, here's my money for free. Charge me to pay me back. Okay, and you can use the money in the meantime. <laughs> it's ridiculous. That's what but, I always but, thought the interest rates were for. I, I, know, I, I teach this. I said, look, you have no money in the bank. The idea that there's money in the bank is nonsense. You have a contract with the bank to pay back. Okay, so if you're a bank, the bank's opposite of you and me. Your deposit accounts are your liabilities. Your loans are your assets. Right. Okay, so when you're the bank, okay, 
you borrow money from these depositors, oftentimes for free. Imagine your you're whatever bank uh, you deal with, they're borrowing money from you for free and they're lending it out to people at 18.5% on a credit card. You want to know how your bank made over a billion dollars in the last 90 days, that's how. If you can borrow money for free and lend it out for 18.5%, you can't not make money. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. And plus, every time you use that card, the bank also makes a percentage of everything you buy with it. So yeah, this is a fabulous business. That's so kidding. Yeah. Yeah, that, 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 credit card? Uh, Put everything on the credit. We'll give you points. We'll give you incentives, right? Well, duh. Of course they do. It, the points are great though. You know, I get a free movie every now and then. Yeah, exactly. And you always <laughs> use your card instead of using cash. And I make money every time you use it. Even if you pay your balance off in full, I make money. And if you don't, even better. The old mattress bank is looking really good now. Well, you know, I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying... That, you know, the, the fundamental banking model is you borrow money at one interest rate, you lend it at a higher interest rate. Okay, mm -hmm. so it's your money that's going to somebody who's buying a house right now, and the bank makes money off of not, well, you don't get any money on this, really. You get some tiny fraction of a percent, and the person on the other side is paying the bank a return on that money, right? They're, they're the leverage, you know, they're, they're this black box between you and the lender, or you and the, and the borrower, I should say, on the other side of, of the equation. So... I was wondering if we go outside the example of say a house, um, do banks offer mortgages on big commercial buildings? Oh, like of course. Absolutely. Yeah. So if like Brookfield were to make a, oh, a yeah. massive tower, is that is that financed by the bank? So the bank can take that back Absolutely. and sell it off? Yeah, I mean, again, maybe there's some eccentric billionaire who just throws their own money into it, but I would be astonished to learn that that uh, they didn't borrow the money. Yeah, and they borrow it through through a mortgage instead of like Absolutely. financing or whatnot. Yeah, like I mean, like issuing shares. Yeah, yeah it works the exact same way. Uh, commercial mortgage and a residential mortgage. You know, if you looked at the paperwork, this, I mean, a commercial mortgage typically would have things like an assignment of rents in it, which basically says if you stop paying me, I'm going to collect the rent from your tenants and put that towards your mortgage. Whereas on your personal residence, you wouldn't see that necessarily. On a revenue property, they'll they'll take an assignment of rents as well. Uh, and, and if it's a, if it's a commercial entity, like, like, let's say you're buying a revenue property, like a commercial revenue property through a company and you don't have a lot of money down, the bank might want a personal guarantee from you, at least initially. And at some point, you know, when my clients come to me and say, well, the bank wants a guarantee. I say, well, you know, let's talk to your friendly banker. Say, look, after five years, once I've made my payments, this guarantee uh, is extinguished. Like put a time limit on these things if you can, you know, there's a little bit of wiggle room there. But uh, yeah, initially, especially the bank might want guarantees, especially with a small company. I mean, if you're Brookfield or somebody, maybe you don't get personal guarantees anymore. But, um. now, I was also wondering, um, again, I'm fixated on the downtown Vancouver for some reason, but let's say international investors want it because there's a lot of international investors who own properties in, in downtown Vancouver, Toronto. Um, what does the how does that work? If like a, if like an investor from China wanted to buy it, wanted to buy a property in uh, in Toronto or or Vancouver, mortgage wise, like are they getting a mortgage from a Canadian bank? Are they getting a mortgage from a from a Chinese bank? Uh, do you have? Uh, it would it would typically be a Canadian bank um, if they were getting a mortgage. Um, and some of these are cash purchases, and, and they're quite frankly a little warehouse for their cash. It's a way they can get their cash out of uh, the country that they're in and out of the crying eyes of the government that they don't necessarily want to see their money. And, and uh, uh, but yes, you could get a mortgage. Again, banks, sometimes guy, people get emotional. About, they think banks are immoral. And I say, no, banks are amoral. Okay, banks don't care. And I give this lecture in my class. Look, the bank isn't out to get you, okay? The bank doesn't care. Like the bank is completely, they're, they're, they're like a Vulcan or something. Like they're just completely logical. Okay, and if you go anywhere, downtown Vancouver, downtown Calgary, downtown Toronto, downtown Shanghai, downtown Tokyo, downtown Paris, I don't care where you go downtown, you look up at all the tall buildings, the names on the sides of those buildings are primarily banks and insurance companies. Okay, and there's a reason for that. They understand risk and they just have a very cold-eyed calculated view of risk. Okay, that's why their names are on the sides of the skyscrapers, right? And so you need to cultivate that skill in yourself. Okay, don't be emotional about the investments you make. Be rational about the investments you make. And take a very cold-eyed look at the risk and decide where your comfort level is. And I tend to be fairly conservative in my investments just because I tend to, you know, I'm at a place in life, I don't need to make a big score anymore. I have enough. I'm just going to, you know, nice steady return. I'm, I'm happy. I don't need to get greedy. 
And, and, and so, you know, when we look at uh, a, a loan, I don't care, you know, I suppose I do care to some extent who you are, if you're some criminal or something, I may not want to be associated with you, but uh, you know, if you've got enough money down and the mortgage makes financial sense, bank's gonna lend you the money. They don't care where you're from. You can be from Mars. So, well, I don't care if you're a Martian, you know, you've got 50% down, I'm prepared to lend. <laughs> I'm just curious what a Martian would have for 50% down, some moon rocks. Or what's in the ground in Mars, right? Moon rocks. Full bars within Mars, you know. <laughs> how, much, how much Canadian dollars is a moon rock worth? That's a whole, that's a whole other podcast, Martian law. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I'm just looking at the time. I mean, we are starting to run low, but th this has been a fantastic discussion. I, I've personally learned a lot. Uh, John, thank you again. for. for yeah, I mean, as, just for, for, for people starting out, uh, one thing I, I just want to touch on is, is a strata versus a house. Uh, one of the things you should be alive to uh, with a strata property the prices tend to be a bit more volatile on a strata. They tend to go up faster, but they also tend to go down faster because people who are mobile tend to move towards strata. Uh, the average time of occupancy in a strata property is less. And my wife and I are considering a townhouse at the moment. We're kind of, you know, starting starting the discussion. And there's a there's a complex we like, but there's nothing for sale. And I said, well, you know, average stay in a condo is about five years. So we know there's about 22 units that we like uh, that are on the right side of this particular development. I said, in any given year, three or four are going to come up for for sale, it's just how it is, right? And so on average, that's what's gonna happen. And so we don't have to panic, it's not like, oh, we've gotta make, it's just, you, you need to understand that. Uh, uh, the pros of strata, obviously, exterior maintenance, that's, that's the appeal for me, right? At this stage of my life, I, I've got a big lawn, we've got a third of an acre, I don't wanna cut the grass, I wanna be able to travel for a couple months and not think about the property. I, my kids are grown, I don't need a big backyard, I don't need those things that, that I mean, it's, it's lovely and it's, it's nice to have, but. I'm, at, I'm moving to that stage and a lot of young people are starting out in that stage because that's what you can afford, right? Uh, so it gives you that simplicity and mobility. It probably doesn't have the upside capital gain that a detached home does in a hot market. Like detached homes tend to kind of hold on to appreciation. They tend to be, you know, if you look at, compared them side by side, probably the house will be better. And so uh, you've got to be alive that, that, you know, there is some downside to that. Uh, but, um, uh, and, and the other thing with, with strata, people sometimes think, well, I'll buy the strata and then one day I can rent it. You've got to be alive to the fact that stratas are these little democracies. And very often, particularly when a lot of owners occupy them, uh, there's, there's very significant rental restrictions. And, and rental is not necessarily an option that you have down the line. Right. So a strata then in, in, in terms of an investment property, not necessarily the best well, investment you know, property? You know, as, as a revenue property, you can buy a strata as, a, as an investment property. But you're going to pay strata fees, and um, you know it, it's less less uh, you know. And, and uh, there's, there's there's an expression called the Peter factor, P-I-T-A, pain okay. in the ass. Okay. <laughs> and some investments have a high Peter factor, and some investments have a low Peter factor. And always think about the Peter factor when you invest. Okay. <laughs> Revenue property has a high Peter factor. Okay. You've got tenants and people moving in and out, and damage to the property, and parties and neighbors complaining, and yards to maintain, and all that. So it's a high Peter factor. Uh, to owning revenue property, but there's good returns. The people who make money on revenue property usually buy a, a relatively smallish house cheap. They simplify everything. They just put a Lionel down everywhere. They keep it, you know, they design it to be a rental property. Uh, they rent out, they you know, put a basement suite in it, maximize the revenue. But still, you know, lawn care and, you know, tenant problems, all those things, there's still a, a significant P effect. With a strata, you can't typically buy a strata with a basement suite. The strata won't allow it. Okay, and so you don't necessarily have that ability to kind of multiply your revenue and get the kind of return you need uh, sort of to make the arithmetic make sense. That said, there are lots of strata type apartment buildings, some near TRU here in Kamloops, where people buy units and just rent them out. And, you know, the math is about break even, but they're thinking in the long term, I'll get some capital gain and I'll be a decent investment. And, and I, I mean, there's examples of that right now. You can buy a one bedroom on Dalgleish Drive near TRU for sort of say 105,000 bucks. If you do your math on the rental, it's about break even. You might make a little bit of money, uh, but but uh, you think, well, in the long term, I think in 10 years, this is gonna be worth 200. And in the meantime, I've got this revenue stream that takes care of itself, and so I'm okay with it. Yeah, I, I mean, don't have to wait. I don't have to cut the grass, I don't have to worry about it. The, the, the building's managed and I pay it every month. 
Yeah, I'm in a strata now, not having to cut the grass, not having to shovel snow. It is fantastic. I will yeah. say that. <laughs> Come visit me at my house and we'll go for a walk in my backyard and look around at my view and, and see the, my spare garage and stuff. And go, okay, I kind of understand why people would want this too. Oh, right? most definitely. <laughs> so, yeah. Like I say, come if if you when this podcast is over, come to TRU. I'll buy you a burger. Oh, I am. That sounds awesome. <laughs> Where about you right now? Uh, I'm just downtown, actually. Well, come up to TRU. I'll meet you at eleven thirty in half an hour, and we'll have a burger. Uh, sure. For those who don't know, it's uh, it's it's cheeseburger day at, at <laughs> Take Cheeseburger Friday at TRU, baby. That's what it, that's where it's at. So that's what we're doing afterwards. I have a, I have a, I have a plane ride booked. I'm in Calgary right now. Plane <laughs> ride booked to cheer you to get a. Hey, it's worth the drive. You know that cheeseburger is worth the drive. I, just want you I to think. I think it is. I never knew about that cheeseburger. So I, I, I didn't either. Friday, man. Like I don't know what kind of cave you've been living in the whole time you're at TRU. <laughs> But hey, we're, it's the library cave. It's you the know? library, man. We're lost in, so we just have to read <laughs> all the time. That's got to learn the finer points of this town. I know we we have we don't have our priorities straight. Clearly, yeah, exactly. Clearly. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, I want to thank you again for your time. I think we all want to go get a cheeseburger now. So I think that's what we're going to, th- I think that's what we're going to be doing now, but it's my pleasure. And if you want to talk another time about sort of the, the mortgage process and CNHC and some of these other things, you know, that might be a whole other topic. We can talk yeah. About. Excellent. There's, 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 there's plenty so more to much. talk about in the world of mortgages, but uh, really appreciate, really appreciate the overview and um, yeah, Tanner and I and our, and our, uh, our listeners definitely appreciate it. So, so okay. we'll let you get some burgers and so I'll meet you about eleven thirty, Tanner. You know where Culinary Arts is, right? Yeah, it's just around the the backside. Yeah. You can right? park that lot. You're not normally allowed to park in, but now they're letting you park there. Oh, for parking because it's uh, of course nobody's here. Perfect. So parking's a be- parking's a breeze. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> I'll I'll see you then around uh, around eleven thirty. Yeah, I'll see you then. Well, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that episode. It was it was very informative for myself and Tanner and hopefully for you as well. But I know you're all interested in one more thing um, and we're going to get to that. Don't worry. Uh, We have a burger review with Tanner. So uh, (laughs) Tanner, how was that burger you grabbed? Oh my God, Jordan. That, uh, okay. First off, I can't believe I've never even been to that spot on campus to get a burger there, but we're talking grass fed beef, fresh cheese, bacon, that was made on campus like it was out of this world the best ten dollar burger i think i've ever had in my life fresh cut fries fresh bun it was it was fantastic 10 out of 10 recommend 10 out of 10 wow yeah i know i know wow (laughs) wow so is this is are you being sponsored to say this no this is uh completely unsponsored I mean, I won't even tell you the name of the place I got it from. That's how do, unsponsored you do realize, it was. <laughs> you do realize that thousands of people from across Canada and North America or in the world in general will now be flocking into Kamloops to, to, to get this burger after that review. God, they should. Definitely worth it. Support the culinary arts program, all that fun stuff. <laughs> shout, out, shout out to the culinary arts program. Mm-hmm. You guys are killing it. I'm sure you're all listening as well. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks once again, everybody, for listening. Uh, Next podcast comes out next month, and we uh, look forward to you tuning in then. All right. Thanks, everybody.